Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 4, our wrap-up of NASHTAG 2022. This conversation asks a diverse panel of industry stakeholders from Big Pharma, Small Pharma, and Leading Edge Diagnostics to join special guest Professor Ian Rowe and our co-hosts to reflect on the biggest surprises and most important presentations of the conference. This conversation shares candid opinions from seven stakeholder voices, three of them new to this podcast, about events at the conference some have called the major inflection point in NASH drug development. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. What was the one thing about NASHTAG that most surprised you? Amy Articolo. So I'll be the brave one first. I would say the energy was what really stood out for me. I mean, I've been through countless congresses and meetings, and you definitely get a sense of the fatigue over time. And for this event, the passion just shone through from the participants, the faculty, and the attendees. Uh, I mean, it was really something that stood out to me about how passionate everyone was and how empowered they were, the curbside consult, if you will, that were happening in the the rooms outside of the meeting, the attentiveness of all of the attendees, the true energy really shown to me and the record-breaking attendance, just a testament to all of you and fantastic job and fantastic meeting. Really, our team that attended were just thrilled to be there, thrilled to participate, and really were just impressed with the caliber and the the true energy of everyone that attended the meeting. And we're so glad you showed up. And it took five years, but you got here as quick as you could, and and you guys were a tremendous participant, so thank you for that. Amen. Anybody want to either amplify on that or go in a different direction about what really struck and surprised surprised you about the meeting? Ian Rowe. Well, maybe maybe I'll come in there, Roger. Only to say that the final New Year's resolution that I'll make this year is one really one for for next year, and that is to actually get to Nashtag in person. I thought that the the virtual experience was good, but judging by the energy that you could feel during the talks and particularly through the podcasts daily afterwards, it was obviously the place to be last weekend. Um, and I'll do my best to be there next year. I will save a spot for you, Ian, for sure. Yeah. And Stephen, I was thinking. I was thinking that the energy was one of the things that lifted Ian and Louise and other people I know in Europe up to stay all the way through that second evening because that was late for them and they were great with it. Rachel, go ahead. Rachel Zayas. I'll say two things here. I'm going to echo what was previously said with the energy and excitement and the diligence in the room. It really brought me back to my roots and really why I went into biotech in the first place. And you could just tell how hungry everybody was in the room and passionate. And I think that that really spilled over and it really has set the stage for such an incredible year for NASH and fibrosis. So that was the first and foremost thing that stuck out. Then I'm going to touch base on the elephant in the room. I'm going to go right into this. I was very surprised that there was such a substantial divergence in pathologists reading for hepatocyte ballooning. Um, It seems very subjective. It seems like this has been something that I was surprised hasn't been under a microscope sooner. So that was the big aha for me. And I was very interested to 
see how this subjective perspective will have implications for biopsies in the future and also lessons learned from the way that they're read. So what other ways have physicians failed to really classify these stages and how can we take this lesson and translate that into other more effective tools coming forward? So that was a very interesting point for me. Stephen Harrison. Yeah, you you know, uh, Rachel, just to follow up on that, one of the things we talked about in our podcast following the meeting was what one particular slide stood out for you or left an indelible impression on your memory. And of course, that one balloon hepatocyte out of 1,100 that all nine pathologists agreed on was one of those. And in that same vein, a slide from Naeem Alcori on the chimera, linking that to the balloon hepatocyte was another one. And then finally, you mentioned the elephant in the room. I thought Sam Klein's last slide of his presentation was a bit poetic, but it drove the point home that it's it's a good time to be obese and have fatty liver because of the all the drugs that are coming out that could potentially modulate weight loss. But you walk away from such a robust meeting like that and you try to remember key salient features or points that can help you in your own clinical practice. And to me, I always like to think about what slide could could I throw in the back of my head and remember it. There were many that stood out, but you highlighted a couple for me there. Yeah. And Rachel, I have to commend you also showing your writer's chops really quickly, describing the slide about the ballooning as uh, something that we put under the microscope is really metaphorically, I think, strong. If you didn't intend to do that, you're better than you think. And if you did intend to do that, that was really good. Stephen, the slide you didn't mention that was the one that jumped out at me was Michael Charlton doing the thing about combination therapies and putting the hearts on all the good combinations, lest anybody forget what you're supposed to visualize. So I thought that was another really exceptional slide. We'll come back. And maybe metaphorical in the sense that uh, we don't talk about cardiovascular disease endpoints as much as we should relative to NASH. Yeah, there you go. That would be also right. So Aaron, let's come to you then. Same question. We've taken away a few topics, but go ahead. Aaron Quirk. Yeah, that's okay. I still have an original one. So I, for one, was not surprised about that energy because I knew this crowd and the energy that they bring to everything. And having listened to virtual NASH tags in the past, I was only pleased to see the energy still emanating, which I felt virtually as attending the conference all the way through. I guess what I was surprised about was also a point that Mike Charlton made and that so few NASH clinical studies are capturing lifestyle of the patients that are involved. I think he said he's only aware of one industry-sponsored study where food content is being tracked. And that was amazing to me because, Louise, I'm very much on your side of these things. These drugs will need to be used in combination with lifestyle modifications, you know, as a supplement to lifestyle modifications in order for them to be most effective. And so if sponsors really aren't paying attention to diet quality, diet amounts of food, and then exercise as well, because we know that that can have an impact on liver health as well, then no wonder we're seeing divergent and variant placebo effects across these studies. So I think it's something that all of us who are in the clinical trial design space need to pay attention to moving forward. You know, Aaron, the reason that surprised me so much is that when Mike does his year in review, he sums up with something very visual and very memorable, like the way he used the Dalai Lama this weekend. Two years ago, he closed by talking about Babe Ruth, the baseball player, and he used that as a metaphor to talk about the idea that the easiest way we can improve our clinical trials would be to manage diet. Literally, he said the one thing we can have the greatest impact on quickly is managed diet. And it was so obvious and so smart the way he put it together, because it's Michael we're talking about, and, and so self-evident that I had expected that people would have made progress on it. I don't look at clinical trials for a living, but I would have expected progress. So when that came up over the weekend, I was tremendously surprised that not more people had heard it. We all stratify for vitamin E use to make sure that drugs that could potentially impact NASH are at constant levels, you know, coming into the study, but we're not paying any attention to diet and exercise and capturing that generally. That's something that really could be an important addition to the field if we were to start measuring it, even in a small way in our clinical trials. Louise Campbell. Quinn- 
Clinton and Steve did comment that Litmus collecting dietary information, and I agreed, and, and I text Roger during that session to say I was struck by Mike's discussion on diet and lifestyle because there are six types of different vegetarians. But if you don't, if you're a vegan, if you're a vovo vegan, if you're a, these all matter. One of my take homes was the gut dysbiosis session whereby we can look at things and look at how we can block it how we can do it i made the analogy of if we add vitamin a and c to food we can increase the iron intake but we can block iron intake by adding black up to 70% of the iron. Now that's helpful for hemochromatosis. Unless we look at nutritional intake, and particularly when we look at weight loss, which I'm sure we'll come on to, uh, in 12 weeks in some of these medications, what's the nutrient changes that we're driving? And these micronutrients through people that can have such an effect. Um, In 12 weeks, that's a significant shift. But I've not seen any data of what we're doing to people nutritionally following these drugs and weight loss. You know, Louise, not the first... Darren points out not the first time you've ever talked about this. And in fact, I thought it was one of the major themes of the weekend is how little care we're paying to understand everything about the patient that isn't about their drugs. One of the things we're learning with clinical trial development is there are ways we can begin to capture that as well. Online, virtual apps that can can break that. And Michael's done a very good job of explaining some of those opportunities that exist as well. So yeah, I agree. I would like to see a more granular uh, tabulation of nutrient intake in patients in clinical trials to see how much that modifies over time and if that correlates at all with, with some of the changes we're seeing on the back end in our NITs or, and or histopathology. People are nodding. Anybody want to add anything to that particular thought or, can we, or we want to go on to the next topic? I'll just add one more thing to that. When we go to market with a drug or when as we as healthcare purchasers buy medication, we need to know that this is the medication that's working and that's what we're paying for. If 70% of the response of somebody's change of NASH or NAFLD is down to diet and we pay for a medication that's highly expensive, then we need to be getting, as Stephen, I, can I get the phrase, the squeeze is worth the juice? Or the juice is worth the squeeze? The juice is worth the squeeze <laughs> or the view is worth the climb. Yeah. <laughs> so we do need to know that when we're buying a medication to help patients and anybody with the problem, that we are buying the medication. And we've maximized everything else. It's a great point, Louise. And let me give you the flip side of that one, right? Which is that we also know that drugs perform better in clinical trials than they do in practice. And we never know exactly why, but we always blame whatever. It, it seems that the ability to align diet to drug will A, make the purchase more worthwhile, and B, increase the probability that you're going to get what you were looking for in the first place. And um, I'm mindful of the vegetarian class you've not mentioned yet, the famous pastatarians. People think if they eat pasta every day, then, then, then it's a healthy diet because there's no meat in it. But yeah, I, I take all that. All right, next question. We've talked about a few things that came up in the meeting outside of the fireside chats that were really striking. Was there a particular presentation that wasn't in the last two hours or the first half hour where the entire presentation just kind of shook you, made you think differently or made you say, boy, I'm glad someone's talking about that because that's way overdue. Either one. I'll be the brave one here. So one talk that really stood out for me was the talk on single cell transcriptomics. I think it's multifaceted. That was an excellent talk. And I really foresee a future where single cell transcriptomics will identify drivers and that will aid in more effective therapeutics. On the flip side with that, we need to be careful with single cell transcriptomics because it might as a diagnostic tool, because that might lead to the same challenges right now with histopathological assessment 
assessments because there might be sampling error along with this. So I was really interested in this as a therapeutic, but I was cautionary in the use of single cell transcriptomics as a diagnostic. So really got my mind thinking. I'm not sure if anybody else had the same insights from this talk or wants to challenge me on this. Well, I'll just add my two cents into this. I, I first kind of became interested in single cell transcriptomics when I went to Paris Nash and I heard a very similar lecture. And then right after that, I heard Scott Friedman get up and have an elegant discussion on stellate cell biology. And you heard a little bit of that come back around in Scott's Q&A session where somebody asked him about senescence. And what we learn is that as stellate cells age, they don't go quietly into the night. It's not the golden years for stellate cells. They're bad actors. And in fact, we know that because when you apply CAR-T therapy and you target senescent stellate cells and you knock them out, you get a dramatic reversal of fibrosis and serum liver chemistry tests, at least in an animal model. So uh, there is a whole world here that needs to be explored. And I wonder, we talk about fibrosis in NASH patients, and I believe it was the Sinecrivorock Centaur trial, where we did three biopsies over a two-year period of time. We had different cohorts, including a placebo cohort that was re-stratified. And so we actually had a placebo cohort for two years and then one for one year. And we were able to show that fibrosis was very dynamic. In fact, it improved in 20% of people. It worsened in 20%, stayed the same in around 60%. And we thought that that was potentially just a natural history of this disease. Well, it turns out, well, maybe it's like the old joke I used to say on the podcast before, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change. And it's the same thing with stellate cells. You could have a drug that could be very impactful on stellate cell biology, but if through epigenetics or some other mechanism, the stellate cell doesn't want to change, despite the fact there's a medication knocking on the door wanting it to change, it won't change. And so we could be swimming upstream with a lot of our therapies, and maybe in part that's why we haven't seen a pure antifibrotic actually be that effective. Stephen, I think there's a lot to be said for that, and that whole session was excellent. You can never help but be impressed by talks that Scott Friedman gives. They're always fantastic. And I thought that the point that he made about unmet needs in, in fibrosis was when we think about antifibrotics, we're thinking about drugs that are going to block the progression of disease. And what he was really talking about was trying to understand resolution of fibrosis more clearly so that you could target the other side of the balance so that once you've switched off injury or maybe even without switching off injury, then you can promote the resolution of the scar, allow the fibrosis to regress and for the patient to have a better outcome. I guess putting those two things together, the team in Edinburgh are running studies looking at macrophage-based cell therapies to try and promote scar resolution, really as proof of concept that that can be done. There's lots to be seen through the approaches complementarily looking at both progression and regression. Yeah, and I think that your point is incredibly well taken. In our drug development strategies, we have tended to say, we'll knock out the upstream drivers of stellate cell activation and vicariously we'll wait for the liver to begin to heal rather than targeting therapies that could actually promote wound healing in addition. And to that end, I'd love to add, I really appreciate those talks because I'm a big fan of let's get to the core of the problem, right? right you know, what are we really looking to, to drive and really solve for? And so that for me, it was, I felt like it was the aha moment of the talk that Michael Charlton gave regarding combination trials and his hearts along, you know, what he would like to see because it resonated quite a bit with me, not only in as an individual, but also, uh, you know, from a company that's striving to look at combinations, but also to hear um, Scott talk about that and the upstream effect. And so it makes you pause and go, 
okay, so what are we really trying to do? You know, what is the greatest impact for the greatest good in a very patient-centric approach, thinking what is the patient going to be willing to take to improve how they function, how they feel, and what can we as collectively do to really get us from point A to point B so that we're able to put that therapeutic and that potential combination therapeutic in the patient's hands? Yeah, I think that's great. When I told you at the beginning about the things that we never do, I think this may be the first time in the history of this podcast we've ever had two people from drug companies on at the same time. And I mentioned that because one of the things I commented on both days was one of the things that kind of an undertone on the meeting, I thought, was the challenges caused by a system in which so much of the drug development is done by small companies. You know, Michael talked about that as a phenomenon right at the beginning. I thought Vincent Wong's exceptionally skillful presentation of the Alta Furman data touched in several different ways on the idea that if you had more money, if this was developed by a company that had more money and greater latitude, it might have gone in a different direction. And we see in a whole bunch of ways as we go back and look at the development process that people have to make compromises with the ideal in designing their trials because they can't afford not to. And then as a result, bad things happen and, 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 and we get stuck. I made the comment to Amy at breakfast yesterday morning that I thought that Novo was clearly an exception, if not the exception, to big pharma really being invested in this right now. I will note that. So, Aaron, I'm kind of looking at you. How firmly did you feel that issue as you listened to the meeting as compared to how keenly do you feel it every day, which I'd be happy for you to go into also. Um, I think this is one of my pleasant takeaways at this meeting is that small companies get to be alongside large companies and present our data and, and be a part of the conversation, which I think is nice. Having worked at large companies in the past, it's had the advantage, I think, of having experiences and working for a big pharma and then also for a small company as well. In some ways, necessity is the mother of invention, they say, right? You know, so the limited resources we have at small companies oftentimes does make us be a little bit more focused. In many ways, that can be a good thing, actually, you know, in terms of what's going to be most important for patients or what's most important for any particular clinical study or what's most important for a certain pipeline. We are at a shift now. I would say if you looked at three years ago, there was a lot of activity from large pharma that were really, really were driving the clinical trial landscape overall. So things have shifted a little bit. But in many ways, I think that might be a good thing for the field because most of the innovations, most of the new drugs do come out of smaller organizations in the end. So this meeting in particular was a really nice way for us kind of all to come together from different walks of life, talk about our data and think about what makes most sense and then kind of go back to our day jobs and put those things into practice. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with another stimulating conversation. Don't be surprised if it relates in some way to Martin Luther King Day. Until then, keep your distance mask up so you can stay safe and surf on. And we can see you soon on the Surfing Nash Tsunami Podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.